0: Good morning, and thank you very much for coming out on uh, an unbelievably frigid morning here in Washington, DC. Welcome to the Cato Institute and our conference today on campaign finance after Citizens United, what happened and what now. My name is John Samples. I'm director of the Center for Representative Government here at the Cato Institute. Three years ago, and plus two days, the United States Supreme Court handed down its decision in the case of Citizens United. The decision found that Congress had no power to prohibit funding speech, that is, no power to prohibit speech, undertaken independently of parties or candidates. And amazingly, three sentences into this, I have already said something deeply controversial, and I expect it to be contended against perhaps today. Later, lower lower courts followed Citizens United in deciding Speech Now versus the Federal Election Commission, which then became, uh, for individuals, the legal foundation for super PACs. Now, speaking of super PACs, the nation has now experienced a midterm election and a presidential election governed by these decisions. That is, the campaign financing of these uh, two elections was covered under Citizens United. So I thought it was a good time, three years out, to examine the consequences of Citizens United. Did anything change is one question we want to think about. Our experts we have today will then turn toward the future and ask what policies should be enacted or not in the light of experience and in Supreme Court doctrine. We'll have two panels this morning, separated by a half hour break at 10.30 AM, At that time, we will have coffee in the Winter Garden, which you noticed you will need some coffee out there. It's a little chilly. But we'll have coffee in the Winter Garden at 10.30, returning at 11 o'clock for our second panel. At 12.30 or so, we'll break and have lunch upstairs, and I'll have more on that later, where to go and so on. Now, our first panel will focus on what happened over the past three years. How did elections and politics change after Citizens United, if they did? The second panel will talk about what now or where policy should go from here. This division of labor, though, I want to warn you, is somewhat artificial. What has happened might well imply what we should do now for some of our speakers. And policy prescriptions might be thought to follow from what has happened. And therefore, discussion of what has happened may be important for our second panel. So our speakers will not be ruled out of order, as if they could be if they say a word or two about a topic that belongs to the other panel. But this is the general set of questions that we will be confronting, in in instance, with both panels. Now, I want to mention it as we get started here that our second panel will be moderated by Michael J. Malbin. Mike Malbin is probably known to many of you, uh, you know something about campaign finance. Uh, He's the founder and executive director of the Campaign Finance Institute. He's also professor of political science at uh, the State University of New York at Albany. And it's fair to say, like the people who are on our panels today, Mike is one of the leading scholars in this field. We really do have an outstanding group of people, um, present speaker accepted in talking about campaign finance and the consequences and follow on to Citizens United. Mike's been writing extensively about money and politics for three decades. So he'll be up here for our second panel. We begin with a panel comprising three distinguished students of campaign finance law and politics. Our first speaker will be Bradley A. Smith, Bradley is the Josiah H. Blackmore II and Shirley M. Noll Professor of Law at Capital University Law School in Columbus, Ohio. Professor Smith is one of the nation's leading authorities on election law and campaign finance. From May 2000 to August 2005, he served as commissioner on the Federal Election Commission, including serving as the chairman. In 2004, uh, Professor Smith served as co-counsel in Speech Now. Dot org versus FEC, the case I mentioned earlier, the case that gave rise to super PACs. Uh, Brad is the author of two books and dozens of articles. His work has appeared in the Yale Law Journal, the Harvard Journal of Legislation, the Georgetown Law Journal, the University of Pennsylvania Law School, and other leading academic journals, as well as in popular publications such as the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and the New York Times. I should say, I just... Beyond the specifics, Brad is a person who uh, was the first, really. He is a forerunner and a pioneer in the area of liberalizing campaign finance law. He began this the time in the 1990s when Citizens United or a decision like that, or indeed any kind of liberalization of campaign finance law, was pretty much unthinkable or off the agenda. It has become part of the agenda because of Brad's effort. He went on to found and is chairman of the Center for Competitive Politics, which works for more open and competitive elections. He's a summa cum laude graduate of Kalamazoo College and Harvard Law School, and holds an honorary doctorate from Augustana College. Welcome to Cato. Back to Cato, Brad.
1: Uh, thank you very much, John. You're really um, very I appreciate your kind words very much, and you're, you're too generous there. but. Uh, We'll continue the, the love fest later. My Cato, actually, I owe most of my career to Cato would be the real truth. It flows more the the other way. But in any case, let's get down to business and, and talk about uh, post-Citizens United world here. Um, The question that we've been asked to address is, is have elections changed as the basis or because of the Citizens United decision? And when I talk about Citizens United, typically I encompass within that uh, the case that John mentioned, SpeechNow.org, not only because I was uh, one of the co-counsels on that, along with other folks from the Center for Competitive Politics and the Institute for Justice, but because it is technically the case that actually allows the super PACs and in some ways is a more important case, I think, than Citizens United, except for the fact that Citizens United got to the Supreme Court first, and and obviously it's important as well, but it's the case everybody knows. So I kind of use the term Citizens United to refer to both those cases and to some extent even to other cases that the court or courts of appeals have decided since that have liberalized the campaign finance regime. Now, the fact is these cases did not change – uh, nearly so much as some people think or as has sometimes been led to believe. Uh, for example, prior to Citizens United, uh, groups that we then called 527s uh, could run ads uh, pretty much any time prior to 60 days before a general election or 30 days before a primary election in which they could say almost anything they wanted about a candidate as long as they didn't conclude by saying vote for this candidate or vote against his opponent or support, elect, defeat, uh, words that were known as express advocacy. Uh, but they could say, you know, uh, John Samples is a dirty, rotten scoundrel who steals Social Security checks from senior citizens' mailboxes and kicks small dogs. Call John Samples and tell him we don't need his agenda in Washington. And, and people would be like, oh, you know, that's very upsetting. You could do that before Citizens United, uh, outside of those windows near an election. And furthermore, after a decision uh, in—and uh, and prior to 2003, when McCain-Feingold was passed, you could do those any time. And after a decision in 2007 by the Supreme Court called Wisconsin Right to Life versus uh, FEC, uh, there was even more leeway to run those ads within the 30-, 60-day window. The court took a very narrow view of what laws or what ads could be regulated even within that window. So uh, corporations and unions could pay for these ads just as they could post Citizens United. It's just that the nature of the ads was a little bit different. Also, these ads could be conducted and were conducted by nonprofit organizations, uh, 501C4 and C6 organizations that we hear so much about in the current campaign. To give you an example, here's a real ad. This was run by the NAACP uh, Voter Action Fund in 2000. It features a film, a grainy black and white film, showing images of a battered pickup truck and chains dragging uh, an individual, a black man, to his death. And the voiceover comes on and says, I'm Renee Mullins, James Byrd's daughter. On June 7, 1998, in Texas, my father was killed. He was beaten, chained, and then dragged three miles to his death, all because he is black. So when Governor George W. Bush refused to support hate crime legislation, it was like my father was killed all over again. Call George W. Bush and tell him to support hate, hate crime legislation. We won't be dragged away from our future. And that ad was run in the week before the 2000 presidential election. Now, is by a corporation, a nonprofit corporation, is that a radical change from where we are post-Citizens United? Now, some people might say it would be better if we didn't have that ad, but I just want to stress first that in certain ways the change is not so great as some might think. Moreover, the change is not so great in a very important way, which is, I think, to the average citizen out there, he notices no difference in the campaign. Oh, there's a lot of news stories trying to rile them up and talking about you know the corporate plutocracy and so on because of Citizens United. And, but in fact, the campaign looked pretty much like any other campaign. There were lots and lots of TV ads, which we know people hate. They've, they've said they hated that in every poll since I was born right? Although we also know from political science research that TV ads are informative to voters and do help voters make decisions. There are lots and lots of negative ads, and we know that voters hate that, or at least they claim they hate that. They've said that in every poll ever taken since I was born. Uh, Although, in fact, they respond to negative TV ads, and and it's shown that negative TV ads can, in fact, move voters considerably. Uh, They think the campaign is too long, and they've said that in every poll since I was born, uh, and, uh, it, you know, it's gotten too long in part because we have more primaries and because the fundraising rules mean candidates have to start raising money earlier because it's hard for candidates to raise money because they're still subject to low limits on what people can give to them, limits that haven't kept up with inflation. So all of these things to the average voter, while the voter complains about them, if we actually look, there's nothing new. They're just the things voters have always complained about. It's kind of like complaining about the weather or, you know, whatever else it is that, that people just talk about as a day day today thing. Now, having said that, Citizens United and the other cases that have flowed in its wake um, are, in fact, nonetheless important cases. I mean, first, I think it is an important difference to be able to do express advocacy ads, right? I think there is evidence that express advocacy ads can be more effective. Certainly, sometimes you might want to do an issue ad, as they're called, where you don't specifically ask people to vote for or against somebody. But sometimes... You know, you want to uh, do that express advocacy. So I think there's definitely pluses that can accrue there. I think also that in many ways express advocacy ads uh, and the ability of, of corporations and unions, nonprofits to fund those creates a, a somewhat more honest system. That is, people go out and they say what they mean. They don't say, call George Bush and tell him to support hate crimes legislation. Uh, when, you know, he's, he's, uh, that's not really an issue. You're trying to get people to vote against him in the election. Uh, And it has definitely increased the amount of spending in political campaigns. Uh, It's tough to get an exact amount and tease out cause and effect and so on, but I think it's probably safe to say that you know, somewhere between 10 and 20% of the spending in the last election is probably due to the liberalization of campaign finance laws that has taken place in Citizens United and the other cases. Uh, if somebody wants to claim it's more or less, I'm probably not going to really argue unless they p- throw out some preposterous figure like 70 or, or 80% or something like that. Um, whether you think this added spending is good or bad depends a lot on your take. Again, there's good information that higher spending can lead and usually does lead to a more informed and and better informed electorate, Uh, that it can be used to depress voter turnout, but it can also be used to increase voter turnout. And certainly in the two elections we've had under Citizens United in 2010 and 2012, turnout has really not been a problem. Turnout has been pretty good for both the midterm in 2010 and the general election in 2012. The other thing that we often get... is this idea that there's all this now non-disclosed or undisclosed spending, or the term that at some point uh, the, the group seemed to agree upon was dark money. Suddenly, last summer, that appeared to be the term that all of the, the liberal reform organizations and the press were using. So I assume they had a conference somewhere, and they got together, and they decided they would call it dark money, and they'd probably focus groups that and, and tested it. Of course, that's a misleading number in and of itself, because when they say that these ads are undisclosed, every political ad, says who paid for it. It's in every political ad. It's the law, right? So what they really mean to say is, we don't know enough about these groups, or we don't know as much about these groups as we would actually like to know. They are disclosed. We just wish we knew more about them. Now, if you take, for example, the Chamber of Commerce, the US Chamber of Commerce, a big spender, I'm not sure that comes into play much. I mean. You know, if, if there's somebody who can't figure out what the basic agenda of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is, frankly, I just believe they weren't even voting. Uh, but, you know, I, uh, we we... For other important reasons, let everybody vote. We don't put that kind of test on people. But, you know, it's not that hard to know what the Chamber of Commerce agenda is. Is it really that important that we know exactly what companies gave money to its multi, you know, many millions of dollar budget, which no company is probably, you know, uh, any kind of dominant percentage? So the problem might be a little greater when you have groups Uh, with names such as, there was one group called, for example, American uh, uh, Commitment uh, that ran ads in the last cycle. And people might say, well, I don't know what American Commitment is. I can't judge that message. And I I don't know who this candidate might be, you know, thinking about or beholden to in some way. But this has been so overplayed. Uh, The estimates I've taken and calculated from the Center for Responsive Politics, one of the groups that talks constantly about dark money, is that about 7% of the spending in 2012, came from groups that did not disclose their donors. That is, the donors to those groups, and this is a decline from 2010. And it's not surprising that this is a decline from 2010 because the only groups that don't have to disclose their donors are nonprofit trade organizations, at C6 organizations, right? Unions, and you know, this generally the member of dollars and small amounts. We don't care a whole lot and nonprofit C4 organizations such as the Sierra Club or the NRA okay and these anybody who would give to these groups specifically with the idea that I want to do political activity has to realize that these groups are limited under the internal revenue code to spending something we, the IRS has never defined it well but it's clearly something under half of what they do on political activity Right? That uh, goes hand-in-hand hand with their legal status. If they do more than that, they're violating their legal status. So these groups are spending something less than that. So if you're a guy who wants to really influence an election, if you give your money to one of these groups because you don't want to have your name disclosed with the ad, you have to realize that you're essentially paying about a 50% tax on your political activity. That is, about half the money you give them will not actually be used in the campaigns that you want it used in. Now, that can be misleading, too. I mean, they might do it to, for other things that you like. They might run nice ads talking about uh, the need for more deficit spending or the need to reduce the deficit or something like that outside of the context of candidates and elections. But still, if you really want to affect an election, that's not an efficient way to do it. You'd ra- much rather give your money <coughs> to a super PAC, which has to disclose all of its donors and all of its expenditures if that's what your goal is. Now, we should also talk a little bit about How has Citizens United otherwise actually affected the races involved? I think one of the biggest things that it has done is it has made races more fluid. That is, it is possible to get money into a political race much more quickly than used to be the case. And one can view that as good or bad. Uh, Most incumbent politicians tend to view that as bad, Why? Because incumbents usually start with a big lead in name recognition and fundraising, and they're usually pretty comfortable, and who's going to get that big influx of cash? It's almost always going to be a challenger who suddenly shows some life or some spunk, and incumbents don't like that. A classic example would be the 2010 race between uh, Bob Etheridge, a Blue Dog Democrat down in North Carolina, and a woman named Renee Elmers, uh, who's now a congresswoman. And Etheridge had won re-election very easily in 2008 and in most of his pre-election or or prior campaigns. In 2008, he had only token opposition. In 2010, it was known it was going to be a bad year for Democrats. Elmer was a better candidate. She was raising some money. He was going to have to maybe you know, jog a little bit to win re-election. But he was on nobody's watch list, not even on the, you know, likely Democrat, but watch. He was a safe seat in every one of the major rankings that undertakes those rankings. Until one day, he's walking outside the Capitol building, and some of these gonzo journalists jumped him and started asking him hard questions he didn't like, and he eventually lost his temper. And these were like, you know, these young student journalists, and he was trying to grab the camera and throw a punch at them or something like that. And it looked really bad. And he was probably going gradually out of step with his district anyway, in the sense that his voting record was becoming more liberal, the district was probably becoming more conservative. And this provided the opening for Elmers. But what made the difference was that it was possible to get almost $500,000 into that campaign in independent expenditures allowed by uh, Citizens United and Speech Now Almost overnight. Whereas in the past, Etheridge, with a huge fundraising advantage, would have just ridden that out. As it is, Etheridge spent far more uh, than Elmers. He spent uh, about two and a half times what Elmers spent, and even when you include the independent spending that favored Elmers, he outspent her by about $600,000. And like a lot of incumbents, Etheridge complained that this was terribly unfair that these independent groups could come in and spend all this money. Uh, a classic example in that case is Dan Maffei, a former congressman and once again a current congressman, but he was defeated in 2010, won back his seat in 2012. In 2010, MAFI was uh, uh, the target of about $500,000 in independent spending that was made uh, possible because of Speech Now and Citizens United. And he said over and over that this cost him the election. It was terribly unfair. He lost the election because of this independent spending. And he's almost certainly right, because he lost the election by just a few hundred votes. So it probably did swing enough to win those votes. What Mafi does not seem to think or did not seem to think was unfair and has never complained about is that he outspent his opponent in that race by $3.1 million to $840,000. And even with then the independent spending, he outspent her by more than two to one by well over a million dollars. That to him was perfectly fine, perfectly fair. That was the normal consequence of the Federal Election Campaign Act, under which incumbent spending advantages rose from about one and a half to one to four to one. And this is just fine and normal in the way it ought to be. But let a group of citizens come in who aren't controlled by a candidate and spend money and this is outrageous. This must be stopped. The Supreme Court must be impeached, right? That was Dan maffei's position. So we see over and over in races, they've been made more fluid. Uh, and we've seen candidates such as uh, Pete DeFazio, congressman from Oregon, who had never had a serious challenge since his first election, actually have to break a sweat. DeFazio won re-election, and in the end won it fairly easily in, 19- in 2010, like 55 56%. But he had to at least run for the first time in years, primarily because independent spending made it possible for a challenger to launch a real campaign. A couple of the other things that have occurred, I think, uh, is that, um, and, and you know, we could go on and on with examples there, but, but uh, I'll leave that as it is. One other thing we see is that I think uh, Citizens United and, and its concurrent cases have made political parties weaker. Remember that the McCain-Feingold law banned soft money to political parties, right? Now soft money was in many ways the best kind of money in the political system. If you want disclosure, it was totally disclosed, right? 100% disclosed. It went to the parties and not directly to candidates. So there was an intermediary between the donor and the candidate on whose race it might be spent. Um, It was easy to raise, could be raised quickly, so you didn't have to spend lots of time raising money, another big complaint that we often hear about the system. so it seemed to be in some ways the best money in the system. But McCain Feingold banned it because, you know, it looked bad. It looked bad. It was large amounts of money. They could say, well, I had large amounts of money, and, and kind of go into the hysterics. And and it looked bad. Okay, so they banned soft money to the political parties. The cases that have come since, the Citizens United cases. And speech now and so on, now allow independent spenders and allow uh, people to pool their resources to make independent expenditures without limit or without uh, prohibitions on the source. So the end result is that. Uh, groups such as Crossroads GPS or more traditional groups such as the Chamber or Planned Parenthood can spend large amounts of money and can raise and spend money in many ways much more easily than the parties can. And this reduces, I think, the importance of parties, which are broad coalitions, increases the importance of single interest groups and of uh, individual candidates. And I'm not sure that that is a good thing Uh, for uh, the political system. But I would note that that can be resolved primarily by simply making it easier for parties and candidates to raise money directly, uh, rather than try to put Citizens United back in the box, which uh, I don't think is possible since it's a constitutional decision. Thus, I would suggest that what we ought to be looking in future efforts for reform is to deregulate the system in ways that will equalize political actors, restore parties to a position of greater significance, Right, Make it so that candidates uh, have some of the same advantages, or better put, lack of disadvantages, that independent uh, spending groups do. I also think, by the way, we should quit calling uh, independent expenditure groups outside spending, as if somehow they're outside the pale. Um, it's always seemed odd to me, this, this concept that uh, elections that campaigns should be just for the candidates, and you hear the candidates say, I can't control my own message, and it's kind of like, well, who says you should control your own message? I mean, I guess you you can control your own message, but who says you control the message of the campaign? We as citizens want to hear about something else. This is what we want to talk about. But I do think, on the other hand, that it's silly to have candidates laboring under burdens that the independent uh, spenders are not. So I hope that will that will go away. I think we'll find, if we really look at the case, if we get past all the hysterics, that none of the dire predictions of Citizens United have come true. Turnout remains strong. You know, we have a, we have a good, very healthy democracy, very healthy elections. Uh, the problems people complain about, about gridlock, I think there's almost no evidence that those can be thrown at Citizens United. Again, those are the same complaints we heard uh, before when Republicans were talking about reforming the filibuster rules and so on. Uh, so I think in the end that these have been good for democracy. And I think finally they have been most good for democracy because what the court does is says firmly and clearly that there are limits on the ability of government to regulate the political speech of its, of its citizens. And I think that is one of the most important statements we can have. I just do not think that in the end, Heavy government regulation of campaign finance will exist without, ultimately, government regulation of the content of the messages. We've seen that over the years already, and examples that I can get to in Q&A if people want to do that. And it's a very important statement to recognize that we as free people have the right to speak out in elections. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Brad. Um, Our second speaker today will be Robert F. Bauer, who is partner at the Perkins Coy Law Firm. Bob returned to the firm after a period of service to President Barack Obama as his White House counsel from December of 2009 until June of 2011. He is now general counsel to the President's Re-election Committee to Obama for America and general counsel to the Democratic National Committee. He's also served as co-counsel to the New Hampshire State Senate in the trial of the Honorable Chief Justice David A. Brock in 2000, general counsel to the Bill Bradley for President (laughs) Committee in 1999 and 2000, and counsel to the Democratic leader in the trial of President William Jefferson Clinton in 1999. Bob is also the author of several books, United States Federal Election Law, uh, from 1984, Soft Money Hard Law, a guide to the new campaign finance law in 2002, and a second edition, more Soft Money Hard Law, the second edition of the guide to new campaign finance law from 2004, and many, many articles on campaign finance and law and otherwise. Bob is one of the leading experts and most experienced people in this area, and we certainly welcome him back to the Cato Institute as a commentator today. <laughs>
2: Thank you very much. I very much enjoy being here and with this panel and with John Samples. I want to say, because he said something overly humble about his own role in this field in his opening remarks, that uh, John has written a book on campaign finance, which, whether you agree with it or not, is entitled The Fallacy of Campaign Finance Reform. And some may not necessarily agree that there's a fallacy there, but they will find... That's a book of uh, provocative analysis and uh, careful methodology well written and uh, always um, arresting and I think that uh, it's it's a book that every practitioner in the field believes made a singular contribution to the literature uh, let me say as the on this panel though um, Brad certainly has represented and continues to represent clients in this field I'm in private practice and I want to clarify that the opinions that I'm expressing are entirely my own and not of any client. I always give my clients the opportunity to disavow, uh, in fact, if necessary, to terminate me. And so I want to make it very clear that what I'm about to say, I say only on the basis of my own observation, speaking only for myself. So let me go directly to the uh, question at hand. And I will, by the way, swing a little bit from the question of how and, and whether Citizens United affected elections in 2012, and to some extent Uh, in 2010, but also what I think its larger significance is for campaign finance regulation in the United States. First of all, uh, on the first question, how did it affect elections? A couple of very quick points that I would like to make. The first is that it depends, and I think Brad Smith had this right, it depends on what we mean. Citizens United has come to represent something larger than itself. That is not to say that the case is insignificant. It is quite significant. But it is true that to understand Citizens United's impact it is best to consider it in the context of other develop- developments in the field of campaign finance. So it is very, of course, closely associated in the public debate with the rise of super PACs. But it is not the sole sponsor, if you will, by law, of the super PAC phenomenon. Uh, it interact with other, interacted with other developments, like the Speech Now case that Brad Smith mentioned, uh, and there was a background to Citizens United that it has to be considered part of, and not the sole actor in. So I do believe that Citizens United, you know, in the public debate, um, is come to be sort of solely responsible for something that's somewhat of a trend. It may be the apotheosis of that trend, but it's something of a trend, and it is the trend that frequently people mean when they refer to Citizens United. Brad calls it a trend toward liberalization of the campaign finance laws. Critics call it uh, a step toward the collapse, at least of the post-Watergate reforms, if not of any conceivable collection of campaign finance laws on the traditional model. But one way or the other, it obviously has attained that significance. And it is a shorthand, in many respects, for that development. Uh, not too long ago, Rick Hasen, who's a professor at the University of California at Irvine, and Matt Bai, who's a journalist at The New York Times, had an exchange about, the, about Citizens United. It began with an article in the New York Times magazine, by By, in which he challenged the suggestion that Citizens United had had a dramatic impact and hasn't responded by saying, indeed, it did. And they went back and forth. Much of the debate was about whether Citizens United had driven up campaign spending in the 2012 cycle. Brad Smith just suggested a few minutes ago, he thought by some number, which we could debate, it, it may well have. Others have suggested that Citizens United has opened up the opportunity. Uh, practically speaking, not just in theory, for corporations to take a more leading role in the conduct and financing of our elections. Others have taken the position that even if it hasn't yet spurred major corporate political action, it has encouraged much more aggressive behavior, generally, in the independent spending sphere. What I guess I would appeal for in my remark here today is some humility about the effects of Citizens United. It clearly is a significant case, I will indicate in just a minute why I think that to be the case. But the practical effects it has had are very difficult to judge on the basis of two election cycles, a congressional midterm in 2010, which is the very year that Citizens United was decided, and then the presidential election campaign of uh, 2012. Uh, Campaign finance and its effects play out over an extended period of time. Often the debate in one period, uh, which becomes very heated around a particular topic, turns out to have been off the mark, misguided. A good example of that is uh, in the 1980s, late 70s, early 80s, and frankly, for some period of time until the 1980s, there was an enormous amount of excitement and debate about the role of political action committees set up by corporations and unions, uh, subsisting on contributions that are solicited from corporate executives and shareholders in the (laughs) one case and from union members in the other case. And the 20th Century Fund, during this period of time, published a book entitled What Price Packs? PACs are now considered a quite tame vehicle for corporate political or union political participation. And the concern about the threat of particular forms of campaign spending to democratic participation has shifted completely away from them. So over time, we'll see more about what Citizens United actually means, whether, in fact, in spurring on the development, say, of super PACs and of independent expenditures, generally uh, it has really transformed the landscape, and in particular, for example, mobilized more direct corporate intervention in our campaigns than was possible beforehand. So I would say that a little bit of of time is going to be required for us to arrive at anything approaching, I I think, a, a reasonably, if not conclusive, but satisfying answer to the question. And when I say, by the way, that Citizens United has interacted with other developments, which, by the way, I think complicates the analysis and I think justifies the humility... I also mean not just court or judicial developments, but also regulatory developments, including what has become of enforcement of the Federal Election Campaign Act. A large debate has developed about the role of the Federal Election Commission. Is it essentially an archaic institution developed in the 1970s and unable to address the task uh, today? There are obviously proposals to abolish it and replace it with a different, more robust regulatory institution. Certainly, the Federal Election Commission has had to address uh, and its actions or inactions have had a significant impact on some large questions, like whether, for example, certain organizations that appear to be engaged in election-influencing activity through the kinds of issue advertising that Brad Smith referred to, are or are not federally registrable political committees that should be registered with the government disclosing its activity, disclosing their activities and complying with limits on their financing. So there's a, a broad uh, series of factors that I think, along with Citizens United, account for uh, what people frequently take it to be. But without any doubt, uh, it has contributed probably in its shorthand form to a view that times have really changed uh, and that we're in a new era, not clear what, where it will go, not clear how our current campaign finance regulatory system will fare, and if it does not succeed, if if it's not in some way on the current model, if you will, strengthened or rehabilitated, what will take its place? Citizens United, certainly in people's minds, signify uh, that we are uh, facing a set of very large questions about where we stand on campaign finance regulation in the United States. Now, the question becomes, what more specifically, as the law begins to develop and these regulatory debates continue to take place, what role does Citizens United have in those debates? And I think this is more the issue of the second panel, but I'd like to tease into it, if I could, just for a second, John having given us permission to do so. And I will say that so far the debate, uh, I think, in some respects, has missed uh, how Citizens United has sort of moved the arguments and frankly, move the prospects of the current campaign finance regulatory regime, the way in which it's adjusted and altered them. A lot of the discussion uh, about the case has been doctrinal, sort of what it has done with the doctrine, the constitutional doctrine, that constrains how government regulates political money. So, for example, the Court and Citizens United uh, fairly decisively uh, dashed the hopes of those who hoped that in addition to basing regulation on corruption or its appearance, there would be some restoration of attention to equality, political equality, as a rationale, as a sustainable rationale for government action. Certainly, Citizens United speaks to that issue, and not in a way that those favoring, like Professor Hazen, equality as a foundation for campaign finance reform, uh, would hope for. Second, uh, there was a hope that, some more practical approach would be taken on the part of critics, this is a view of critics, and I'm not taking a position one way or the other on this, uh, to the status of independent expenditures. Uh, you recall the Supreme Court uh, actually took, in a case that involved judicial campaign financing, a very critical view of what constituted at least the significance of independent expenditures, a case called Massey. And there was hope that the court would loosen up the opportunity here to really look at w- whether or not independent expenditures were truly corruptive. You know, the basic theory being, and Brad alluded to it a few minutes ago, and this was articulated by the Buckley Court in 1976, that independent expenditures couldn't be corruptive because they were independent of the candidate who didn't control them, might benefit from them, might suffer from them, but had no control over them. And the view was that because they were independent, therefore, unlike contributions, they couldn't really corrupt. And there uh, obviously, is a school of thought that that is, just as an empirical matter, not correct, uh, and that therefore Congress should have more leeway to put limits on independent expenditures, and the Supreme Court and Citizens United appeared to have very little patience for that. So it's a second doctoral development of some significance. Uh, but I also believe that the Court and Citizens United left a remarkable um, record here of judicial skepticism. At the obviously highest level, at the level of the Supreme Court of the United States, about the entire campaign finance regulatory enterprise in a way that leaves real questions about where it can go from here. And the baseline, of course, is the model that was established in the 1970s uh, post Watergate, which was a mixed regime of contribution limits and source restrictions and disclosure requirements. Um, And what the court in Citizens United uh, along the way, Justice Kennedy writing for the court has to say on a couple of points, really suggests that the court at least is approaching this entire question of how government sorts out and controls in some respect campaign financing as very, very risky business as a constitutional matter and highly suspect. So here are a few examples in the opinion that doesn't receive as much attention as these core doctrinal issues. A few examples of what I have in mind Justice Kennedy, speaking about the complexity of campaign finance regulation, bearing in mind it's a civil enforcement scheme, as Brad Smith well knows, because he wrote some of the regulations and opposed some of the regulations, (coughs) litigated over some of the regulations. Um, Nonetheless, I mean, obviously, the FEC operates through rulemakings, uh, and they necessarily have spawned a significant body of law. The court writes, Kennedy writing for the court, Campaign finance regulations now impose unique and complex rules on 71 different distinct entities. They are subject to separate rules for 33 different types of political speech. The FEC has adopted 568 pages of regulations, 1,278 pages of explanations and justifications for these regulations, and 1,771 advisory opinions since 1975. Continuing on from there. Kennedy again speaking. This regulatory scheme may not be a prior restraint on speech in the strict sense of that term, for prospective speakers are not compelled by law to seek an advisory opinion from the FEC before the speech takes place. As a practical matter, however, Kennedy goes on to write, given the complexity of the regulations and the deference courts show to administrative determinations, a speaker who wants to avoid threats of criminal liability and the heavy costs of defending against the FEC must ask a governmental agency for permission to speak. As a practical matter, says Kennedy, that's what people are driven to do. They have to ask for leave of the government to speak. And he concludes, at least in the segment I'm giving you, by saying the following. These onerous restrictions thus function as the equivalent of prior restraint by giving the FEC power analogous to licensing laws implemented in the 16th and 17th century England, laws and governmental practices of the sort that the First Amendment was drawn to prohibit. Because the FEC's business is to censor, therein here is the danger that it may well be less responsive than a court to the constitutionally protected interests of expression." So here's a fundamental statement by Kennedy writing for the court, that the very business of regulating politics the very business of regulating of campaign finance, which necessarily entails administrative intervention through regulation and in other ways, statements of policies, there are obviously other means by which the administrative agency is heard, poses a fundamental threat of censorship. It inheres in that task that it is inimical to the First Amendment. So that's one point he makes that raises a question about the 1970s regulatory model. Another that he addresses is the question of the distinctions that the regulations draw among different kinds of speakers. Obviously, in Citizens United, what he was referring to primarily was Congress's expectation that corporations could be prohibited from spending directly. And so in that sense, even though they could set up political action committees, they were... Uh, precluded from direct participation in a way that's not true of other entities, certainly true of unions, certainly true of foreign nationals, certainly true of foreign contractors, but not of other entities. But the campaign finance laws rest fundamentally, as I said, on a regime of contribution limits that are drawn differently for political committees and individuals, all based on legislative determinations of the balance that is, in the whole. on the whole, not to mention in the specific giving situation, the least corruptive. But of that... Kennedy has this to say. Quite apart from the purpose or effect of regulating content, the government may commit a constitutional wrong when by law it identifies preferred speakers. By taking the right to speak from some and giving it to others, the government deprives the disadvantaged person or class of the right to use speech to strive to establish worth, standing, and respect for the speaker's voice. So fundamentally there again, speaking to the fundamental regulatory model, Checking there, five minutes. I can, do, I can do this. I can do this. Uh, just, uh, speaking of the regular, to basic regulatory model, he's saying the distinctions on which these laws rest are, again, inherently suspect. Some people can participate more than others. These distinctions are drawn in a fashion that are constitutionally troub- troubling. Third, Justice Kennedy speaks about the fact that campaign finance laws are fundamentally not terribly effective, because one way or the other, people will find a way around them. Pretty remarkable statement, but he says it in quotes. Political speech is so ingrained in our culture that speakers find ways to circumvent campaign finance laws, unquote. Just as a statement of fact, you could maybe draw it down to a much bolder statement. They don't really work. They can't really work. And then last but not least, on the subject of cost, which was obviously the subject of the back and forth between Hazen and uh, Bayh and others uh, who have commented on $1.2 billion presidential campaigns, $20 million House races, $80 million Senate races, the court does not seem inclined to revisit the Buckley Court's suggestion in 1976 that cost may be a concern, but it's not concern enough uh, to justify heavy governmental intervention in the campaign finance process. Uh, Kennedy quotes uh, from the Buckley Court saying, and I quote, the skyrocketing costs of political campaigns cannot sustain the governmental prohibition. He just basically sets aside the question of cost as a further basis for giving legislatures leave to find a way to manage the impact of costs on integrity of government and the perception of integrity of government. So where does that fundamentally uh, leave us? It leaves us with a, fund- a question here about the court versus the Congress on the basic task, the viability of the task, of regulating political money in our system. Uh, the court had, seems to be reflecting, at least that majority does, a, a profound skepticism that the, the enterprise is viable at all. And so I'll close by just uh, citing to you um, a pioneer in campaign finance scholarship from many years ago, Alexander Hurd, who wrote a book called The Cost of Democracy that was published in 1962. And Hurd was a very uh, cautious scholar. Uh, he did not have. Um, what by contemporary terms would be viewed as aggressive pro-regulatory views. Um, He was very interested in the data and what it showed in tracing money and its effects. And he fundamentally identified three requirements, he thought, for a balanced, sensible campaign finance system. One, and this is very important because it goes to the question of cost and how it drives so much of campaign finance and has driven the issue, frankly, onto the public policy agenda since the 1920s, Resources have to be sufficient to support political campaigns in the United States. That's requirement number one. We have to have the resources for the actors in the political process to accomplish what they want to accomplish. But secondly, and he said, we need to find a way to find those resources in a fashion that does does not permit a particular interest to skew the governmental process in their favor, to so control financing that it drives the government in a particular direction. And last but not least, third requirement, the public, and this obviously relates to the second, has to have confidence in the system. They have to believe that the system actually functions with integrity, appropriately, intelligibly, and truly also uh, with enough room for people to participate in the political process without fear of legal liability. But fundamentally, they have to have confidence in the process. Citizens United reflects a view, and as Brad says, it's not the only case of its kind. It interacts with other cases, which I think go much to the same point, that right now this court, there are four justices on this court who agree about resources but don't agree that there's much that the government can do about the other two points, about sources that could be made compatible with both protecting, uh, the, the goals of protecting the integrity of the government and securing public confidence in the political process. Uh, With that, thank you very much.
0: As you may have noticed uh, this morning, we've already discussed the issue of experience, what actually happened. When uh, I think about political science, a lot of political scientists work in this area and talk some about this area. When I think about empirical work in political science, I think about our third speaker this morning, whose work I always appreciate and always want to see, Ray LaRaja. Ray is an associate professor in political science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and the editor of The Forum, an electronic journal of applied research in American politics. And I have to say, this is not The Forum is a good academic journal, but it's also one that would be of interest to people who are interested in politics beyond, uh, but not necessarily so much about uh, just academics. It's, one, it's an academic journal that is, should be of interest to everyone. It's a very fine journal. He's the author of two books that have have appeared or will appear with the University of Michigan Press. The first was Small Change, Money, Political Parties, and Campaign Finance Reform, which explains how political finance laws shape parties and elections through American history. He has a forthcoming book, uh, Do Campaign Finance Laws Matter? Money and Politics in the American States. And an edited volume with Routledge this year, Uh, New Directions in American Politics. He serves on the Academic Advisory Board of the Campaign Finance Institute here in Washington, and he received his BA and Master in Public Policy from Harvard and his Doctorate in Political Science from the University of California at Berkeley. Welcome back to Cato, Ray. Thanks. Great,
3: okay. Uh, Thank you for having me here, John. What can I say about the impact of uh, Citizens United Well, like a bold academic, I'll say it's too soon to tell, and we need more research, and uh, Bob said as much. And with this disclaimer done, um, I'm free to speculate. Let me say up front that I'm worried about what's happening to uh, party organizations. It's not entirely the fault of Citizens United, but the decision in combination with speech now has made it far worse, much worse for parties. I think more money, normatively, I think more money should flow through political parties rather than groups, because at least in theory, as, as Brad suggested, Parties more accountable. They're broader coalitions. They tend to use their money to help challengers. They're less inclined to support extremists, which is no small matter in today's polarized environment. Um, let's see. Where I push... Uh, oh, here we go. Okay, thanks. Here are some trends I see in how Citizens United plays into them. It didn't uh, cause them, but it really greases the wheels, especially since 2002 when Congress passed the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. What are these trends? First, there's a redistribution of money away from candidates and towards groups. Candidates are still chiefly responsible for raising and spending money, but more now was spent by others, and for a while it was political parties, but since the BCRA, it's non-party groups, and Citizens United ratchets up this dynamic. Second, there are strong incentives for collective action by partisans in the last two decades. This is an important point national politics today is about high-stakes elections, all right? Both parties have a chance to control government. They have very different views about what should be done, and because of this, partisans want to organize and coordinate, but campaign finance laws put irrational constraints on them. The laws we have were created, designed during an era of candidate-centered elections when parties didn't matter that much. Third, regarding consequences, Citizens United helped undermine transparency of money, though it didn't cause the problem. First, we had party soft money, but as Brad noted, we knew where the money was coming from. Now we have super PACs. Again, lack of transparency reflects this severe mismatch between a high-stakes party system and old-fashioned laws that force money outside the regulated system. (laughs) And things are only going to get worse, in my opinion, as Congress, every member of Congress is going to want their own super PAC, Um, and we're going to have an arms race. Okay, finally, in spite of these dynamics, I don't see telling evidence that Citizens United had much impact on the elections, more on this uh, in a bit. So let me start with the first point about redistribution. First I want to note that total spending didn't explode, like many have said, at least it doesn't seem that way from initial estimates. This chart shows that total spending in presidential election was about the same or slightly less uh, compared to 2008, and these are based on estimates by the Center for Responsive Politics. In 2012, there was $2.9 billion spent, pretty close to the previous election. It includes all spending, candidate, party, non-party, as is, is good a job as uh, the Center for Responsive Politics can do. The same is true for congressional elections. Again, after hitting a peak of $3.6 billion in 2010, total spending seems to have declined by $300 million in the last election. This makes sense because the House really wasn't in play in 2012 the way it was in 2010. It was not a wave election by any stretch, so not as money went around. So total spending is about the same, but here's the redistribution I'm talking about. This slide for presidential general election shows redistribution from party organizations to non-party groups. The data are from Mike Franz, who just did an article in the forum about political ads. And he shows a pattern since the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, which can't be attributed solely to Citizens United. Citizens United made it more stark though. When parties had soft money, they funded 65% of all ads in the general election. Interest groups finance less than 10%. Now you see the shift immediately after BCRA. Parties start losing soft money. Today, after Citizens United, just 6% of ads in presidential elections are funded by parties, compared to 30% by other groups. For congressional elections, the party committees still adver- out-advertise other groups, but that gap is closing in the last few election cycles, and non-party groups are uh, increasing their advertising. Well, this graph illustrates two important points. First, the blue bar shows increasing importance of political parties in financing their elections through the 1990s. This reflects my argument that collective organizing was increasingly important with majority-stakes government and polarized parties. Parties played a key role in the 1990s in waging campaigns. The second point is that this role is being challenged by non-party groups. Starting in 2004, after BCR, party activity flattens while interest group goes up. In 2002, group spending surged, Uh, thanks to Citizens United and the Speech Now decision, which uh, Brad had a hand in, made it far, far easier to support super PACs. So when people ask me, you know, why super PACs? I say, don't blame Sheldon Adelson, all right? We have super PACs because the party system has totally outgrown the campaign finance system. Political scientists like to talk about problems of collective action. We also talk about how parties help solve these collective action problems. But here's the problem. The campaign finance system makes collective action tougher because it constrains the party so much. The problem started with the Federal Election Campaign Act. So the logic of the system was that candidates would control their own campaigns. Um, Individuals and PACs would give to them. Ultimately, there's a great system for incumbents, and, and John made this point in his book. They built huge war chests through PACs and vastly outspent challengers. But then the party system changed in the 1990s with intense competition. Partisans needed to organize to maximize seats. The FEC promoted an inefficient distribution of money that went to incumbents who didn't need it. So under the rules of the FEC, the parties were treated marginally better than interest groups, uh, slightly better. So the response was to use soft money to help more candidates in close races. So when BCRA shut that soft money off, parties turned to independent spending. Then came Citizens United and Speech Now, which undercuts the rationale to run things through the party. Now sadly, some of the surge in soft money outside the regulated system could have been avoided if the Federal Election Campaign Act had adjusted for inflation. So this figure illustrates the point. If $20,000 contribution limits in parties in 74 was adjusted for inflation today, the parties could receive legally 94,000 per year or close to 200,000 per election cycle. Now to put this in perspective, I did a study of the 1998 election that showed just 1%, 1% of soft money contributions were greater than 100,000. Simply making these inflation adjustments when the FECA was started uh, might have solved the soft money problem. 99% of contributions came at values less. That would have been acceptable on the FECA except for some source limits. But what happened under the BCR? We actually tightened. We actually made it even worse. We put the vice even tighter on parties than the original Federal Election Campaign Act, which I already said was not too kind to parties. The value of a contribution to parties today in 1974 dollars is just $5,000. And this is after people who promoted the BCR say, hey, this is good for parties. We're raising a contribution to party from 20,000 to 25. Well, what about in terms of the value of that money back in 74? So if you can't finance party for high stakes elections, where do you go? You go to super PACs. All right, this is campaign finance interpreted by uh, Piet Mondrian. Um, <laughs> what, what I'm trying to show here with my colleagues, Bruce Desmaris and Mike Cowell, is that using, we're using some network analysis, is that collective action is really going on. It's more than just the parties. So what these charts show is clusters of donors and candidates comparing the 2000 election with 20 years ago. And we've done this through all the elections and we see a trend. The outliers are those who spend big on select group of candidates. Very targeted, coordinated strategies. The blue are Democrats, the red are Republicans. Rectangles are clusters with mostly incumbents. Diamonds have non-incumbents, which includes open seat races. And then the ellipses have mostly challengers. So if you look back in 1990, you see some evidence that groups are targeting some non incumbents on the Republican side. You know, Republicans are getting ready to take over Congress. But mostly it's a dense cluster of interest groups in the middle, all pursuing similar strategies. They're supporting incumbents. Now look at 2010. There are very unique outliers, groups like Club for Growth, NRA, with highly focused support of challengers and open seat candidates. The graphs don't show this up here, but the median amounts coming from these groups is much larger today. And this gets to Brad's point because it includes independent spending, okay? Unlike 1990, which was only PAC contributions. So you know all this, but the larger conceptual point I wanna make is that parties are now clearly relying more on allied interest groups to do what party organizations in most countries typically do. And that is they fund their challengers. So the the double-edged sword here, and I'm gonna emphasize Brad's point, is that these challengers are actually better supported perhaps than ever, okay? And so maybe there's more competition but on the other hand, they're supported by groups that I would argue have rather narrow political agendas. And I would argue this dynamic is probably a source of pushing polarization. Citizens United plus speech now will probably gives more electoral influence to these groups. All right, but here's the puzzle. Can I have a glass of water here? um, here's the puzzle. It's not clear that Citizens United is having much influence at all in elections. I'm not even sure all the spending is making a difference, and you've already heard Bob allude to this. Um, it might just be an arms race going on. For example, Lee Drupman did a basic analysis of the 2012 elections. Mike, he's a colleague at, at Northwestern. He found no impact of total uh, outside spending on vote share in house races. So what this shows, he found millions spent by these super PACs for some candidates had a very tiny, tiny effect. in. Uh, not nearly enough to affect these races. I mean, this is a preliminary analysis. The dots on the right show where Republicans clearly had a financial advantage. But as you can see, if you look at all the blue dots to the right of that line, um, they lost a lot of these races. There's no correlation. This kind of throws you off with those big lines, but this is the line I'm talking <laughs> about. So all these Republicans had extra spending, but look at all the blue dots of people who actually won their races. <clears throat> um, Now, um, another way of looking at this is to see what's going on in the American states. So my colleague Brian Shaft and I did a study recently looking at states that put in place corporate spending bans and union spending bans since the 1960s. So this is before Citizens United. And we looked at election outcomes. We wanted to know whether Democrats uh, did better now that presumably corporate bans might help them. And in these, if you look at this, uh, in these models, any deviation from the middle line would show an effect on the Republican share of seats. And as you can see, the coefficients are really, really small, almost zero, and often the opposite of what we even expected. For instance, in Republicans benefited in Kentucky when they passed a corporate spending ban. So go figure. So we, we couldn't find anything consistent here. We also looked at whether incumbents do better without corporate union spending ban. Again, we found no consistent evidence uh, that it was having any effect. So overall, I would say that Citizens United has accelerated the flow of money to groups, but it not really clear how much difference it made in election outcomes. But nonetheless, candidates, they perceive that this money matters. And guess what? Perception often matters. So these groups are going to get attention from candidates because they fear them or they want their support. The parties, uh, I think, are in a much, much weaker position, and I, I, I see that continuing. So, of course, incumbents in both parties are anxious about all this, um, about all this spending that they can't control. Um, so they, they might try to ease the laws on parties, you know, bring back some form of soft money. I doubt that's going to happen. More likely, every member of Congress, as I said at the outset, will aspire to have their own super PAC. And then, then you know, I'll turn it over to the lawyers here, You know, we're truly in a campaign environment with with parallel worlds. I mean, this is the matrix. One world that is heavily regulated and one that is not, uh, side by side. So I'll stop there and take
0: questions. What I was saying about Ray, wow, great great stuff. Um, I'm also reminded of... uh, Ray's colleague and former teacher Bruce Kane, who was saying to me recently, you know, at the time of McCain-Feingold, we tried to tell the reformers that if you pass this, you're going to weaken the parties. And so it would seem now Ray offers some uh, more evidence on that point. But I want to get to questions and answers. Uh, I see that a lot of people have come in since we started. Many of the luminaries of campaign finance in the Washington area are here today. So I'm sure there'll be some great questions. Just raise your hand and please wait until the microphone arrives, then identify yourself. And disclosure is uh, voluntary here. You can say who you're affiliated with, if you want to or not. Uh, But uh, also, please indicate if you want to direct your question to uh, uh, one panelist or the other, or to all three. It doesn't really matter. But please uh, speak clearly, and also, of course, Uh, Have your question in the form of a question. So who who will we start with the gentleman down front here?
4: Hi, I'm I'm Ken Doyle with PNA Um, Okay, I I just I'm curious if mr. Bauer wants to respond to the point that was made about the effects on the parties of of These trends that I, I don't think that you talked a lot about that the other two speakers mentioned that as a major uh, trend and, and possible concern and whether you see that as a concern and something that should be dealt with.
2: Well, setting aside the question of what can be done about it. And that raises a, a very interesting sort of academic or theoretical question about the extent to which political party development, uh, is shaped by or affected by, you know, legal regulation that is directed to political party development. In other words, whether law can actually, by design, build successful political parties. On the other hand, law certainly, by design, can affect the availability of resources. That's just a matter of fact. And without any question, I don't think this is even something anybody needs to spend a lot of time arguing about. It's probably one of the few points that could be removed from the typical contention of campaign uh, finance debate. Parties were shut off from certain resources uh, through the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, McCain-Feingold, and uh, those resources are available to other actors in the political process. So in that sense, there's no question that that, uh, parties have uh, been dealt a a significant blow in the financing available to them through uh, legislative developments in recent years. Question of whether something could be done about that. I mean, obviously, there's some answers to that. Ray says party financing could... Soft money financing could be restored in some fashion or what is defined as hard money could be redefined So for example hard li- limits could be increased still further, which also was a feature of mccain gold. but as Ray said, it's not at all clear that there's any move in that direction
0: Other questions in the, the gentleman in the back
4: David Kopp with the Friends Committee on National Legislation. Do the speaker see uh, Congress taking up any of these issues in the next two years?
0: Start over here. I'd get everyone's opinion on this.
3: Well, some people are closer to this than I am, but I, I, I don't foresee this coming in at all. Uh, I don't, I don't. First of all, the president has an agenda that doesn't really seem to include this, as far as I can tell, and the, the parties are so far apart on this issue, uh, I can't imagine them agreeing. They can't even agree on basic transparency laws. So um, I get the sense that the Republicans want, and this is traditional for Republicans, they want to increase money for the parties. Um, the Democrats uh, strategically, actually, they seem to do pretty well working with outside groups. It's Maybe it's from their legacy, working with unions. Um, so I don't see them doing that. Um, so I, I, I'm curious to know whether Brad thinks there'll be further deregulation. Uh,
1: I would, I would think that it's unlikely that Congress will do anything for some of the reasons that uh, Ray has mentioned. And, and I think that there's a couple of, of issues that do come into play here. One again, is that the insistence of uh the the sort of pro-regulatory community is is that nothing has changed they're they're offering the kind of same solutions that they've offered for 30 years you know regulate more more limits more restrictions you know grind everybody down and that and that's just going to be a non starter that's that's just not going to go any place and i think the other issue is that from a partisan uh standpoint the well has largely been poisoned even as racist to do something on uh Uh, basic disclosure. It might be one could do something, but first it's going to have to be realistic in recognizing that we don't need to be disclosing every, you know, $300 $300 and $500 donor. We don't need every penny to be disclosed instantly on the internet, that there are reasons why people might want to protect their anonymity. But more than that, uh, you know, quite frankly, I mean, Chuck Schumer poisoned the well on this two years ago when he, and with the support of all the reform groups, introduced the Disclose Act as a rabidly partisan act that would have uh, prohibited a lot of speech that was legal even before Citizens United, and Schumer openly said, hey, the you know, our, the deterrent effect of this on speech should not be underestimated you know once you've done that uh, you know now there's more Republican senators than there were then and I just don't see that there's going to be uh, anything there for that that would That would come of that even where otherwise there might be a chance for some reasonable kind of reform regulation that would uh on disclosure pull in a few things that people think should be disclosed and then make some meaningful changes that would do away with what we call junk disclosure disclosure that actually misleads the public or that just confuses the public or that serves no real public purpose at all
2: well i would be only guessing but there are a couple of i do think there's a possibility that attention will be paid to this transparency question to disclosure there has been a very significant development in the campaign finance reform debate over recent years and set aside for example the partisan conflict over the disclose act and that is that uh, many of those skeptical about regulation in the past have argued and many of them are to be found in the republican party that even if there are significant risks to expenditure limits or contribution limits and the like, uh, that the answer lay in essentially disclosure. And that argument has radically shifted on the Republican side uh, in a way that's you know quite alarming to proponents of transparency, in the sense that rather than viewing transparency as maybe the core appropriate measure that the government can take in campaign finance regulation. It's now viewed increasingly as the means by which the government basically smokes out its enemies or partisans in the government smoke out their enemies uh, so that they can either intimidate them or take further retributive action against them. And it's really shifted the debate on transparency dramatically from one where there was some potential bipartisan consensus in view to one where bipartisan consensus has appeared to, uh, to, to collapse. Having said all of that, I think there is still uh, a view, and I think it's a, I don't want to overstate this because it's a loose term, but a general public view, that uh, some measure of transparency is necessary, and there are concerns that we're headed into a direction where we're going to see less of it. Now, Brad says, and, and I have no reason to doubt him, that there's an overstatement in the public debate about the percentage of this kind of advertising, uh, the, the election-related act a- advertising, you know, of the kind that may not be explicit in its electioneering focus but is intended to influence elections. 501c activity. Uh, he believes that there's less of this undisclosed spending um, than people imagine. But as I said earlier. Uh, one would have to be worried about a trend. Uh, one would have to be worried that you know, what we're seeing now may or may not be uh, an indicator of what we would see in the not too distant future. So I think there will be a, 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 an active debate at some point, I don't know exactly when, and with what prospects of success about transparency. As to the larger question of whether Congress would take up any more substantive action, um, I think it is fair to say that given the legal environment in which we're operating, Um, there's just a lot of uncertainty about what to do. In other words, just exactly in what ways to shore up the model, which is why I I stress that I think one of Citizens United's legacies uh, is to underscore uh, the the resistance that the federal judiciary is putting up uh, to some of the steps that Congress would have to take to strengthen the campaign finance regulatory regime.
1: John, can I make one more quick, real quick comment, which is also, you know, we here in D.C., we always tend to focus on Congress, but uh, I think where there's likely to be more action is in in the states. Uh, and we already see a number of states doing different things, including some states that are talking about doing some of the things that have been suggested—that of, of liberalizing the regime for parties or you know raising contribution limits uh, substantially. While others are still trying to figure out ways that, that that boy, if they could just crack down on this stuff, they would you know all their problems would go away. But I think the states might be we're more likely to see action.
0: i just just add to that that uh, clearly the most important person now, as in some years past, in this, whether anything will happen, is Senator Mitch McConnell. Uh, He may, we don't know what's going to happen to the filibuster in the next few days, but it seems unlikely he will be totally deprived of it. Uh, And obviously his views are a matter of public record, including a speech at AEI uh, back in the spring. I'm I'm told also, though, that uh, Senator McConnell by people who purport to know his views, uh, feels that on something like disclosure, for example, that any kind, he has an extreme slippery slope idea, that is any kind of movement even on things that uh, would seem to have uh, support or whatever. He's worried about that because he believes in, uh, uh, with uh, McCain-Feingold, that he was forthcoming in ways like that, and uh, in doing that, (laughs) Being forthcoming, he ultimately got rolled down the hill, and you ended up with McCain-Feingold. So his strategy learned in the past through hard experience is simply to just say no uh, and then go from there. So that would suggest, if that is the case, and I don't have any real insights apart from what people tell me, that would suggest that there's not a, a broad scope for doing anything. But it's because, as Brad has mentioned a couple of times, of what happened in the past uh, in this area, which this, this area has a long past. The gentleman right here in the middle, right there.
5: Thank you all. Uh, my name's Michael Beckel. I'm a reporter at the Center for Public Integrity. Um, we've heard a little bit today about the importance of nonprofits as a vehicle uh, for citizen engagement, collective action, uh, whether that's express advocacy or issue advocacy. And um, recently, uh, the Obama campaign has decided to roll over much of its apparatus into a 501C4. Um, reformers often talk about the worry of uh, large donations going to a group whether it's a political committee or this type of committee and I don't know if you Mr. Bauer were helpful in setting the 501c4 up but I'm interested in your opinion and also Mr. Smith's opinion on how risky it might be to have a sitting president working with a 501c4 or even raising money for a 501c4.
2: Well, uh, having attempted at the outset to separate my comments from my client representations, I meet with complete failure at this point. I, I do represent um, Organizing for Action, uh, which is the name of the C organization that you're referring to. And um, I would simply say that, uh, as you know, uh, it will not be involved in electoral activity at all. So for, in that sense, it is not to be confused with the type of 501C activity in election cycle that could rise to concerns The type of concerns in the campaign finance sector that we're actually talking about here today, Uh, it is, as you know, completely devoted to both federal and state public policy and issues development and advocacy. That's its purpose, and in that sense, therefore, it'll be operating as a 501c4 uh, social welfare organization. Um, Without going a tremendous amount of, you know. Uh, discussion about uh, people's, uh, you know, views of the you know, feasibility or wisdom of such an enterprise. I think I would say this, which is, the business of communicating uh, on issues in this country and involving oneself in the day-to-day business of grassroots mobilization requires resources. And as I said at the outset, the largest issue that uh, that, that that we all face is that in a country of this size and complexity, and even with Developments like internet communications, which have in many respects um, reduced the cost of participation in some respects, Uh, there are really significant issues of resources that are required that that you face in engaging in what is healthy, robust, significant political activity in this country. And to the extent that there are large resources required, uh, then you know, there are steps that you can take to manage for any of the risks that you identified. And those include, by the way, those measures include disclosure. And as you know, Organizing for Action will be disclosing its donors.
0: The gentleman in the back had his hand up. We'll try to get to everyone.
6: Hi, I'm Bill Allison from the Sunlight Foundation, and I guess the question I have is, when we're talking about super PACs, and uh, I believe Bradley Smith made the distinction that you know we're not really talking about outside spending groups, and I happen to be- agree with that distinction. When you look at these organizations, something like ninety-five percent of them have, you know, you- we're talking former RNC chairmen, former uh, the congressional committees. Um, it's not as if these are really. You know, these are mostly political insiders that are running these organizations. And what I'm wondering is, you know, is is the problem here much more what was addressed in McConnell versus FEC with the understanding that, you know, what you have is a revolving door problem, that the old party officials who used to be taking the money and presumably still have their Rolodexes and their ability to contact um, members of Congress and administration officials. I mean, is that the situation that we're in where... It's not so much that this is an outside spending problem as it is a revolving door problem
1: well i, I don 't know you know uh, what it would mean exactly uh, any Any group that's spending money is likely to be run by allies of of the candidate, and there are a limited number of people uh, who know how to do this type of work uh, effectively and and who want to do it so You know, sometimes we'll see these things saying, oh, these groups are really independent. Why, that's run by a former, you know, Obama advisor or a former Romney advisor. Well, of course it is. Uh, You know, it's not going to be run by some guy who's never been active in politics a day in his life and suddenly wakes up one day and says, think I'll start a, you know, $20 million super PAC to support the election of, you know, Mitt Romney. That's not going to happen. Um... And I'm not sure that you can uh, say it's a revolving door. You know, traditionally when we talk about the revolving door, we mean between people working in government and people working in the private sector and cashing in on their contacts, not people working in the private sector and then moving to a different job in the private sector uh, and cashing in on their contacts. So I'm not sure that that formulation uh, is something that that will work uh, very effectively. Um, you know, I mean, uh, most of these people have have not been government employees, or at least not in the way we tend to traditionally think about the the revolving door. Say someone like Carl Rove; it's not like he was a you know a commissioner on the SEC or a high ranking Senate staff member who's now lobbying the SEC or the Senate staff. Um, and I think that there's a, a a big mistake often about what it means to say that something is coordinated and why coordination is prohibited. At the most core level, coordination, coordinated activity counts as an expenditure, as a contribution to a candidate, because once you put limits on the candidate, you don't want the candidate, me to go over and as the candidate, and say, hey, Ray, you know, here's a copy of my campaign literature. It would be really helpful if you would distribute about a million copies of that in these places, right? I mean, that's just essentially the same as a, a contribution but it also served the the purpose of doing away with a very difficult burden of proof issue. That is, remember that prior to Watergate, you could walk into a congressman's office, you could leave a sack of cash on the desk if you were so inclined, you could walk out and, you know, you could say, boy, you know, I sure hope you're going to support that bill. Oh, by the way, you know, there's a campaign contribution, but i just just leave nobody knew about it, right? and and you could do that pretty much and that was an open invitation to bribery and it was an open invitation to people not knowing what conversations went on and so on the whole idea of coordinated uh, contribution and, and independent expenditure. It's not that the court really means that they never have influence on a person. They mean, and they said, that they're not corrupting in the sense that people are not sitting down and having that specific conversation. I'll give you this money. I'll spend it in this way. Or the candidate saying, here's what I need you to do. It's an effort to make a, to, to extend essentially bribery laws into an area where the burden of proof was extremely difficult. So we make a big mistake in thinking that somehow uh advocates and allies of a candidate are going to have nothing to do with that candidate that they're not going to be identified supporters of that candidate that they're not going to ever have contacts with the candidate's staff and its people and it's an immoderate and i think you know kind of extreme position to think that we can can do away with that and have a bunch of sort of you know platonic rulers who are isolated from all public opinion that's just not going to happen so I, I guess i would just say i don't think that revolving door answer gets us much closer and i and i don't think that a lot of the criticism uh that's reflected in the assumption there has reflected realistically on what the reason is for prohibiting uh coordinated expenditures or at least for treating them as contributions
3: other comments Say yeah, one quick thing i mean my, my concern about these super PACs is you get yeah they're all insiders but they're you're getting all the political talent moving outside the accountable channels and they can draw huge salaries if there's very little cost control if you're making millions of dollars. So that's that's one thing. You're, you're going to see a drift of, of, of good people in the party. Um, they can coordinate too with other groups. I think it's crazy that the political party can't be part of that or the candidates. I mean, I, I also think it's crazy candidates. I mean, of course, they're coordinating some matter. My, the graph I showed of uh of the, these outliers those that's clusters of groups supporting clusters of candidates they're coordinating there's no doubt about it i mean yeah it's just the accountability i i again the reason i'm on uh, this promotion of, of the party is because i like to see uh, consultants arguing with people local party officials about where to spend the money i like i like that kind of internal combat i think it makes people more accountable to each other um get their messages together that's that's what the broad coalition of a party is about so that's one of my big concerns about super PACs.
0: another question gentleman on the aisle
6: craig holman with public citizen i'd like to follow up on the super PACs from a slightly different angle because i found it interesting uh ray your last bulleted point where you mentioned that incumbents are panicking, so they are setting up super PACs. I believe that appears to be the case. When you take a look at all the politically active super PACs in 2012, literally 48.9% of them were dedicated to a single candidate, just one candidate. Doesn't this suggest that perhaps incumbents are indeed setting up super PACs and that? Uh, as a result, perhaps it would justify regulating super PACs under the same types of rules that apply to candidates?
3: Well, I mean, I, yeah, I, I think that's exactly what's happening. I don't know how you're going to regulate. I think the lawyers could respond better to this, to this question. But um, I see that as exactly, it's obvious the candidate is saying, getting his or her consultants say, hey, go, go set this up and protect me and help me in this next race. I mean that's that's plainly obvious. But I, I can't see I mean it also gets at how how aggressive is the is the FEC or even the 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 um, IRS going to get in helping with with regulating these agencies? I, 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 this is beyond my my Well,
1: uh, the thing is, of course, that obviously a great many of the super PACs are not related to a single candidate. So the first thing you're gonna have to do is think about, uh, you know, using the assumption as correct, you're still gonna have to think about what's the sorting purpose here, what's the sorting principle. Uh, And of course the sorting principle that's been rejected by the court is that you can just treat everybody as if they were the same as the Candidate, I mean that's what's been clearly rejected in the parts talking about uh, in the court's decisions talking about independent speech I do think that there are some uh, minor changes that one could consider for example the FEC regulations uh, were written uh, for PACs and for uh, candidate ability to solicit uh, prior to Citizens United and speech now decisions, even at the time of speech now, uh, you know one thing that was never raised in the litigation by either side was the idea of single candidate super PACs, um, which is kind of interesting, but in other words, you, you might tweak the uh, rules regarding solicitation so that if candidates can 't solicit for a super PAC that is only supporting them. Uh, you know, and, and so there's some things like that. But I think to try to do some blanket assertion like, well, we're going to treat all super PACs as regular PACs is, is exactly what the courts have struck down and, and exactly the kind of thinking, again, that takes the approach that essentially, you know, we're all criminals and we're all, the government needs to be protected from us rather than the idea that most of us engage in public speech and, you know, political participation because we want good things and we're, and we're good people and, you know, maybe we need to be protected from the government.
2: Well, just to you know, stick to the, uh, to the law and uh, not to the sort of public policy debate on this point, I think that the fact that um, you have a large percentage in the aggregate of PACs that are devoted to a particular candidate, I think ultimately doesn't get you around the constitutional issues with trying to stop it. Uh, in other words, it, the fact that you have that A, PACs devoted to a particular candidate, super PACs devoted to a particular candidate, be that there are a lot of them, isn't going to help you sort of navigate around the, the, the fundamental legal problems here that, that Brad outlined. The way the law has been set out at this time, the fact that the people involved in the super PAC are supporters of that candidate, may have had prior relationships to that candidate, including close prior relationships to that candidate, um, is not enough, uh, even if there are a whole host of such PACs. Uh, to get you around the, uh, the obstacles to regulation. I think that's pretty clear.
0: Gentlemen on the aisle, Dr. Roger Pilon will give us our final question of the morning. First panel.
4: Uh, you know, thank you, uh, John. Roger Pilon, Cato Institute. Um, I want to raise a, a bit broader issue here. Um, from its inception, uh, campaign finance regulation, and the massive amount that we have today has been justified uh, as a way of preventing corruption uh, or its appearance, um, by which the court has meant, of course, quid pro quo corruption. And yet we've heard very little about that uh, this morning. Brad, in his, uh, a moment ago, uh, got uh, close to this issue. Uh, Mr. Bowers spoke about an alternative rationale, the level playing field, and now the court has given that short shrift. I'm just curious how much this basic rationale plays in any of the uh, minutiae that this cottage industry that you folks belong to uh, is engaged in, uh, or how much, uh, or what other rationales are really at play
1: in this?
0: Hey, it's a living, Roger.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll... I'll comment try, try to be brief which is hard for me but you know I, I think that uh, first there's an important difference between influence and corruption and I think that uh, one of the things the court has rejected is the idea that influence equals corruption that indeed politics is all about influence and as uh, one commentator once said you know if we all had equal influence why would anybody participate in politics, especially if we were all guaranteed equal influence? Every time it got unequal, the government leveled it again. There'd be no, why would we do it? Why are we here? Why do we come to Washington? You know, Do we do it to have more influence in politics than the other guy? Uh, and some of these people have flaw- This Obama guy has tons of influence, you know. and <laughs> So we all have uh, influence. That may seem silly, but, you know, you can think about it that way. We, we all have un- unequal influence. And, and so the courts rejected that idea. But I think what's happened is, increasingly, because the courts rejected the equality rationale, uh, reform arguments, which are primarily, in my view, at least at the academic level, based on equality, have had to try to cloak themselves or disguise themselves in the corruption argument, and as a result, therefore, they further confuse this issue a lot. Uh, they talk about it being corruptive just because person A has more influence than person B, and and things like that. And I think that has been a problem. When you look at a lot of the actual legislation, as it gets, you know, as the ideas get, you know, ground into legislation. Oftentimes, corruption and equality all have very little to do with it. Uh, you know, one thing that, that kind of I, I laugh about, you know, we all have this stand by your ad provision now in the ads, you know. I'm Brad Smith, and I approve this message because you idiots couldn't figure out that a campaign for me was approved by me, right? <coughs> which is how I would do the disclaimer if I were running, which is why I don't run. Um, but. You know, why was that there? The, the congressional record is very clear on this. The incumbents thought it would reduce the amount of political attack ads against them. They thought it would benefit incumbents by reducing negative ads toward them. And and you saw a lot of that in the McCain-Feingold bill. They started thinking of all kinds of things. Oh, we could use a millionaire's amendment that will make it easier for us to fend off, you know, wealthy challengers and things like that. Um, And, and of course, this is one of the, and you see it, by the way, in the enforcement process where a lot of the complaints are very partisan-driven. And this is, of course, one of the problems with the idea that you can have a sort of a benign police speech or a benign police regime of political activity. You can't do it. It's always going to be inextricably bound up in the partisan politics of the day, and that makes it a very dangerous area for the government to regulate
3: well, there, there is a cottage industry looking at corruption in the quid pro quo sense in political science, and it's just devolved into arguments over statistical modeling because we really can't prove, we can't demonstrate whether someone uh, is, is being corrupted by getting contributions. What is more... Uh, the research has gone more into agenda setting to see how uh, members might just not talk about issues or might push other issues. Or, I mean, that's one of my fears with the super PACs is... Uh, they're, they're, they have a powerful role in, in agenda setting because they can throw a lot of money into a race. They can, the threat of throwing money into a race can make people not discuss issues. So that, that's, that's where the research is moving right now. Um, but it's not built into the law. How do you, I, I can't, the law is built on quid pro quo corruption. So um, I don't know where you go from there.
2: Just uh, three quick responses. First of all, Uh, It is true that in its most starkly expressed form, the equality rationale is quite distinguishable from the corruption rationale. It's also true that there is some slip and slide between the two of them, because to the extent that you would have gross inequality in access to political resources, if you imagine a world in which there were a handful of speakers responsible for funding uh, campaigns, um, then somebody would have a genuine concern that they would... um, they would be able to call upon the people who they funded for some sense of obligation, and that that in turn leads to corrupt government. Government that's so significantly skewed towards some set of interests that, in effect, the government's paying uh, the one who's calling the who's paying the freight. So there's there's this equality argument gets treated as entirely separate, but unfortunately, it's not conceptually altogether separate, and it's always a concern. Secondly, public uh, it's corruption and the appearance of corruption and uh which the court has said uh sort of very loosely is what supports uh government regulation of campaign finance to the extent that you again have gross inequality in the access uh to campaign finance opportunities if you will access to participation in in the in the electoral process um there is obviously even by the court's own rationale a potential threat to public confidence that the government's really working on behalf of the broader sort of Public interest, and last but not least, on your point about a minutiae, which is a member of the cottage industry. I was quite glad you raised a question about one of the ways that corruption slips, sort of a little bit away in a highly regulated system from focus, um, and something else takes its place. Is in the conception that even the Supreme Court has discussed of circumvention, where the conduct that's being challenged is not conduct that's corrupt; it's conduct that effectively sought to get around the rules, sought to circumvent the rules, and so the attack is on the conduct as a challenge to the law and not as conduct that is self-directly related to corruption. And a number of the measures uh, in, say, for example, the McCain-Feingold law were designed to address circumvention, not, if you will, a primary threat of corruption, secondarily a threat to the law that was itself a bulwark against corruption. And so with the minutiae, a lot of the fight over the minutiae is who's trying to get around the law? not so much who by their action is actually trying to corrupt the government.
0: We are now going to go to our break. Uh, The coffee will be available in the Winter Garden. You just go out, take a left, and go out toward the front of the building. Uh, But please come back at 11 a.m. for our next panel, which will start right on time. And join me in thanking our three excellent panelists.